0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. A lot of you know that in addition to this podcast, I'm also the co-founder and co-publisher of Brick and Elm Magazine, which I launched in 2021 with Michelle McCaffrey. This week, we have just finalized our March-April issue. It's at the printers. This is our annual home issue and I am really excited about this one. Uh, It's just such a cool issue. I know a lot of listeners have mentioned that they buy every issue of our magazine at Market Street or other retailers like Burrowing Owl or Market 33, and that's great. I love that you're purchasing it. I appreciate it, but here's a tip. If you subscribe at BrickAndElm.com, you're going to save at least a couple of bucks for every issue just by subscribing to a full year, and it'll deliver right to your home or office. So uh, go to BrickAndElm.com. Anyway, as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to LPT CPAs and advisors, online at lpt.cpa. For what it's worth, the T in LPT is Johnny Terra, who is a former guest on this podcast. Today's guest is Matt Griffith. Now, I've known Matt for a long time. Our sons are the same age. They played on basketball teams together. But the work he does is really fascinating to me. He's the vice president at Rock Rose Development, and has been with that company for nearly 30 years. Rock Rose is the developer behind Emerald neighborhoods like the Colonies, City View, Westover Park, and the new pinnacle development behind Randall High School. Now, I suspect a lot of listeners, they know about builders, they know about new homes, but they don't necessarily understand the role of the developer. And developers are the companies that start these new neighborhoods. They design and build them literally from the ground up. And so Matt lets us behind the curtain to talk about that work, how he ended up doing it and what this looks like in Amarillo, not just historically, but right now and in the future. I really hope you find this just as fascinating as I do. Here's Matt Griffith. Matt Griffith, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being
1: here. Great to be here. Thanks, Jason.
0: Yeah, it's an honor to uh, to have you here. I know we've known each other uh, for a long time, but I want to start with you the same place I start with all my guests, and that's just to ask you why you're here in Amarillo. So what brought you to this area?
1: So I'm here because I was born here Okay, and uh, lived here my whole life, thought about moving off on, on a number of occasions, but Amarillo is just home. I have no desire to live anywhere else at this point. Did, do
0: you know what brought, like, your family here, What how they got here before you were born?
1: So my dad uh, moved here when he was a teenager and met my mother. They met at Horace Mann. Okay. Uh, what's Horace Mann Middle School now was Horace Mann Junior High at the time. And they met uh, as, like, 13-year-olds and were together their whole lives right. after that. That's
0: a fun story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where did you go to school?
1: I went to uh, South Lawn Elementary and Fannin Junior High and Caprock. Okay, and then AC and WT, and uh, I don't want
0: to you know age you too much, but like, uh, what's the time frame where you were graduating from? from high I school? don't
1: mind. I graduated in high school in 1981.
0: Okay, and did you did you know you know when you graduated, you went to AC, you went to WT? I mean, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do?
1: Well, you know, my whole life is what it is because of different mentors in my life, and when I was in high school, I had the most amazing. Uh, drafting teacher, architecture teacher by the name of Jess Roan. Well, he influenced me dramatically in terms of just the skill of designing homes. And Mm -hmm. so I became very passionate about that at a very young age and decided I was going to be an architect. So I went to Texas Tech uh, to visit the architecture school, uh, not really thinking about the economics of it all (laughs) and realized, well, I can't afford to go to this college, but I still wanted to be an architect. So Because of Jess Rohn's influence, I continued to draw plans and fast forward about uh, two years after my first exposure to architecture. And at the age of 16, maybe 17 years old, I decided this is what I want to do. And I don't have the time or the money to become an architect, but I can design houses. You don't have to be an architect to design houses. You can be a a draftsman. That's right. Is that what it's called? So I didn't know any better. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to go do this. So I went to a parade of homes. This was in 1980 or 1979. Okay. Which was,
0: that was, Parade of Homes was really different back then. It was yeah. like a literal parade on a single it, city block. Is that that's exactly right, okay. Jason.
1: It was, And so on this one particular parade, there were probably 12 or 13 houses on one street. And I literally went into every house and I had a little tube. And for those that are not old enough to know what why I had a tube with paper in it, that's how you did plans back then. Yeah. It was on paper. And so I went to these different builders and just said, do you need anybody to draw your house plans? And of course, most of them were polite and just looked at me like, who are you? And why would I hire a 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid to draw my houses? And they politely excused me. And I had one last shot at this and it was the last home, literally on the block. And it was a man by the name of Kenny Howell who ended up becoming a very well-known high-end builder in Amarillo. And so I thought, Okay, well I'm going to try something different. So I walked in, got his attention. He kind of took a little bit of an interest and I just out of nowhere I said, "If you'll let me draw your plans and you don't like them, you don't have to pay for them." So, I get a call and he's like, "Yeah, let's do this." So that started a kind of a small business of me designing houses for for Kenny for a number of years as a as a side job
0: without really having, I guess, professional training Outside of high school, right? Like you hadn't taken drafting classes at Amarillo College or anything like that. You were just doing your own thing.
1: But bear in mind, you have to understand the context of Jess Roan and Caprock in the 80s and 70s. He was a notch above most colleges. Okay. Right. So it was a level of formal training. I remember taking my first architecture class uh, at at AC and the teacher recognized that I was from Caprock and said, you don't need to be in here. There's Hmm. nothing that I'm going to teach you that you don't already know from Jess Rohn. So I had an an advantage in having such an advanced education at a very young age in that. So I was able to make somewhat of a living out of that at a very early age early age.
0: I, I'm the son of an architect, so I'm familiar with what it looked like, you know, in the in the seventies and eighties. You know, my dad had one of those huge drafting tables. <laughs> right. He had all these cool T squares and uh-huh. tools and stuff that he used all the time. Like as a kid in high school, like did you have a setup? Oh, like I that? did.
1: So <laughs> uh Kenny was gracious enough to let me draw the first set of house plans for him in his house on his drafting. Okay. Board. And I saved all that money and then I bought my own equipment so that I could do it at home. And then I became home designer for um, two or three different builders after that. Kenny just helped me really kind of launch off on that.
0: How long did that, that phase of your career last?
1: Well, off and on, I ended up getting hired at the city of Amarillo as a planner okay. for a job I was not qualified for that needed a degree. But that's another mentor in my life by the what name was of your J.D. Degree, Smith. And... So I didn't have a degree yet. Okay. You're okay. in the process. So at then. this point, I get hired on at the city. A number of different jobs, but ultimately, J.D. Smith recognizes something, I don't know what, and just decides, hey, I'd like to have you come over to my department and we want to make you a planner. And it required a degree. And he said, well, let's figure this out. Let's figure out how we can get you on the right path so that you can actually work your way into this position. And so he helped me launch into a night school career. So I was working at the city by day going to night school at... Emerald College and, and WT. It took seven years to get a four year degree right. in business. Uh, but that's but at the same time I was also doing this this house plan business. So I had the night school, the house plan business, working at the city full time. And um, lawn mowing on the weekends, okay. while I was training for marathons. So I had a very busy and active schedule. You were you were hustling in my twenties. That's right. I was. I didn't know any different. Right. All my friends hustled. I hustled. My parents hustled. We just. That's what we did.
0: What What were you doing as a uh, a city planner, or at least in that mm-hmm. department, as you're being trained? Like, a lot of people probably have heard that term, don't know what it means.
1: Sure. No, it, it and it means a variety of things. In a big city, you might have what's called an urban planner, and they're literally responsible for things like transportation management and the creation of uh, redevelopment areas that are turned into retail districts. And there's a lot of comprehensive planning that has to go into doing it right. Mm-hmm. In Amarillo, it was really more making sure developers were doing things the right way, the way they were laying out their neighborhoods, the way they zoned the neighborhoods, where they put businesses versus where they put residential, what kind of residential mixes go together. Uh, you really try your best to try to help create a, a, a logical and comprehensive plan that flows and works well and, and, cre- and adds value to the areas. So I was doing that at a young age. I was just 19 at the time or 18 huh. while going through this process. And it got me lit up into this sort of industry of, this is so cool. Like I was in a room drawing house plans till two in the morning. And I never really had an opportunity to see what any of this meant. Like I was just in that one little scope through that lens. And I thought, man, this is really a big, broad thing that planners do. Mm-hmm. It's it's very comprehensive and it's very long term and strategic. And so I fell in love with that. But the problem was it was the 80s and so we had the big boom of the late 70s yeah. and early 80s. <laughs> in fact, a lot of people don't realize this, but there were more houses being built per year in Amarillo, Texas in 1979 than there are today. Wow. We've never achieved the rate of growth in housing to this day, that we were achieving in the late 70s and early 80s. That was an
0: oil boom sort of period. The oil
1: boom, and then of course come the bust, and, Mm -hmm. and, and the savings and loan crisis, and things went exactly the opposite direction. So in about 1986, when things got really bad, then my work as a planner was limited. Prior to that, we were dealing with case studies constantly. We might go through 150 case studies in one year. Now we were lucky to get 20 or 30 in mm. a year. And by case studies, I mean zoning requests and platting requests and new developments, new neighborhoods. Right. So we went years with no new neighborhoods coming online. And so there was this set of plans that I found. And another mentor, J.D. Smith, uh, that I mentioned that helped me get through college, he just said to me, well, hey, you know, take this home. It was a neighborhood plan and mess with it. And so I, from what I had learned in planning and a and little bit of engineering is, Huh. So I, I at night, I would go on my drafting board, and I just sort of redesigned this neighborhood, not just kind of for fun, not really thinking of it as becoming a neighborhood, okay. just on paper, a two-dimensional drawing. What would I do different?
0: Was it one that a developer had started or that had been in process and it just needed yes.
1: some tweaking? Exactly. Okay. So I find out later, <laughs> I took it back, rolled it up, gave it to my boss, and didn't think anything more about it. This is like 1988, 1989. Didn't think anything more about it. So fast forward several years, in about 1992, I had the good fortune of meeting a man by the name of Sam Atterbury. Well, Sam Atterbury came into the office and had these plans and wanted to find out who had done this redesign of the neighborhood. And that's what led to a conversation with Mr. Atterbury is that whenever my boss, J.D. Smith, said, well, it was this guy. And I thought I was in trouble. I thought, oh, my gosh, I've offended somebody by changing up their neighborhood plan. Turns out he really liked it. Hmm. And, and, and then he had it evaluated by a civil engineer. And it, for a lot of boring reasons, it ended up being a more cost-effective plan. And so builders at that time were coming to landowners like Mr. Atterbury and saying, hey, we're, we're, we need a neighborhood. Things are picking up now. It's, it's the earth. By this time, it's about 1992, so I was blessed with the opportunity to partner with Sam and his family in this business called Rock Rose Development. Okay. It was all because I I just messed around with a plan at night and turns out he liked it so much. It is now what is known as Westover Park. Okay. I was it's, gonna ask what the, that's what was the that name that, that, that was, was the first neighborhood, neighborhood we developed and we developed it from that from that new design. What
0: were some of the the neighborhoods or the developments you worked on, you know? With the city, you know, early in the 80s mm-hmm. when some of those were booming. Do you know yeah, that?
1: so the big ones, of course, were Puckett and Puckett West okay. and uh, Sleepy Hollow. And so Sleepy Hollow got hit hard right at the at the crisis point of the mid-80s. And um, it took many years for the neighborhood of Sleepy Hollow to finish up. And again, I'm, I'm really big on people that have influence in your life and paying close attention to what people are teaching you and, and learning from those individuals. And there was a man by the name, of Mr. Ted Shuler, who was actually a president of one of the savings and loans. And that savings and loan ended up having to uh, repossess some of the property that is now known as Sleepy Hollow and foreclose on it. Well, instead of just putting it up for auction, he decided to develop it. And so Mr. Shuler, while I was still a planner, would come in and and piecemeal, just one little phase at a time, and I learned kind of through him how the whole development process worked because he wasn't a developer either. We were both learning from each other okay. the processes, and he ended up sort of—I'm I'm skipping out some details—but he was he was by and large the main developer of the second half of the Sleepy Hollow okay. edition,
0: sort of finishing it out. That's then. right. When Mister Atterbury, you know, came to you with the idea, like was was he? looking to become a developer? Like, was it just, he was a landowner and, you know, the, the home construction guys Mm. were asking him for some stuff or did he see, all right, this is, this is maybe the logical next step.
1: He had great instincts. Uh, he, he owned quite a lot of land Mm -hmm. over the years he had acquired through his grain business and incredible instincts. He was very entrepreneurial, obviously. And so he loved the idea of, he had two choices at that time. He was at a crossroads and, His daughter, Suzanne, (laughs) could probably tell the story a little differently, but this is the way I remember it. So he had a moment there where he thought, okay, development's coming back, housing is coming back. I could sell this land to a developer or a group of builders Mm -hmm. and just make make some money and move on. Or why not just start our own development company? And that's what led to that conversation with he and I and Suzanne uh, in their office lobby on a Saturday and six hours later or eight hours later, I lost track of time. We kind of had a rough draft of what this partnership would look like and what the business model would look like. And we just invented it on the fly. Okay, <laughs> And so we took off and we didn't know what we were doing. I had enough knowledge, right? I don't mean to make it sound like I had no clue, but we certainly had never done this. There hadn't been a new development since city park in the, in like, you know, seven years okay. prior. Yeah. Right. So even the people that were at the city at that time, most of them had never experienced what a new development process and procedures would look like. So we all got to kind of start over and start fresh with, well, this is what we think we want to do. What do y'all see as some impediments and let's work together and make this happen. So we did. We even invented a <laughs> one, one time it came time to sell the first phase of lights and I had never done this before. I was going to baseball games and introducing myself to builders and trying my best to figure out how to get someone interested in building a house in a neighborhood that didn't exist. Yeah. Just on paper. So I thought, well, what if we create kind of a buzz? And so we, I threw, I don't even remember how I did it because it was before email was that big of a deal and there certainly were no cell phones or at least most people didn't have one. But somehow I got enough people interested in the idea that there was going to be this opportunity to buy lots in this new neighborhood called Westover Park. And we were going to make it a limited you know, invitation only deal. We're going to bring you over to our office and we're going to do a, what is now known as a lot draw. And uh, and so we just kind of invented this thing where we said, "Here's the map," and when your name is drawn out of this hat, you get a chance to pick. And so it kind of created a buzz, okay. and people thought, "Oh, I better get in on this." It's Like
0: you're you're at a fantasy baseball draft it's great. or something. It was yeah. like
1: so we sold 35 lots that night, uh, contracted 35 okay. lots that night, and then of course, oh no, now we have to produce. So we went about the business of develop in the neighborhood and, and had a good core group of builders that ended up kind of making a career out of that neighborhood.
0: Okay. So I, I want to ask a couple of follow-up questions. The, the first one is, you know, you had been coming from a public service, you know, mindset working for the city, um, doing development. It, it, it's this, the same sort of work because you were familiar with house plans and with how to structure stuff. But then you move into Rock Rose, which is a new business, And all of a sudden, like you don't just have to do this kind of production side, but there's a there's a management side, there's Mm -hmm. a financial side, there's the business of it. Mm -hmm. Like, did that feel like a stretch to you? Did you feel equipped maybe to to expand your role?
1: So my instincts were very much like nothing seemed to be an insurmountable challenge, and not from arrogance because I certainly didn't have the knowledge. It was just, but it was the opportunity. And so I've, I always had kind of prided myself on trying to always be open-minded to opportunities and not being afraid to ask questions. And I had no problem going to people and saying, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And, and, and I remember talking to my first paving contractor that to this day is still our paving contractor and explaining to him that this is what we're going to do. <laughs> I don't understand it completely. Can we sit down over lunch and you can kind of walk me through this because I'd love to look at hiring you you know, to build our roads. And I did the same thing with our utility contractor. And I did the same thing with XL Energy and got to know the folks who were responsible for uh, residential development. And I thought, you know, the relationship building piece of this is what's going to win the day. But to your point, coming from an entirely different kind of setting, I was excited by the opportunity because I was fully vested at the city. I wasn't married. I had nothing to lose. Literally, I remember thinking, my parents are in the grocery store business and I have I grew up in the grocery store business and I'm fine with making a living being in the grocery store business. So if this whole development gig doesn't work out, I really don't want to go back to the city. I loved the city and they gave me fantastic opportunities. Don't get me wrong. It was hard to leave. It really was. But once I kind of had a taste of private business mm-hmm. and so forth, I thought, Worst case scenario is we hit another bust period and this thing completely goes bankrupt and I'll just go run a grocery store. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I wasn't concerned about it. You had a backup plan. Yeah, I had a backup plan.
0: The the other thing I wanted to ask, and, and this is just to educate listeners, I think a lot of people, when they think of neighborhoods or they think of construction, they think purely at the residential home level. You know, I see a house for sale. I like the neighborhood. I buy that house. They don't think of the fact that there's... Beyond the home builder, there's a developer who is putting that neighborhood together, mm-hmm. deciding where the streets go, getting the utilities there, mm-hmm. naming the, the the roads. I mean, mm-hmm. making sure there's sewer lines, all mm-hmm. that stuff. And and so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you do as a developer and the stuff that, that maybe most homeowners don't even think about. Yeah.
1: No, it's a good question. In the early days, I was the head of marketing and the head of design and the head of construction and the head of management and the head of all of the above. And so I had fantastic support, obviously, with Suzanne and Sam. But at the end of the day, I had to get the work done. And so what I would do is... Uh, design the neighborhood roughly, right? Because I had the design background. Mm-hmm. And so colonies is a good example. And we, we ended up buying the land in the late 90s, but didn't start the development until like 2001, 2002. So there's about three to five years of background work that goes on before you ever see the first road cut okay. in a neighborhood. And so once once I had sort of the two-dimensional vision of what the colonies was going to look like, Uh, Which, by the way, there's a lot that goes into that, and I don't want to get too deep down a rabbit hole. But not not only just the actual layout of the neighborhood, but taking into consideration things like where's the school, the park, Mm -hmm. where are the common areas going to be, where's the retail going to be, where are the businesses going to be, where are the high-end homes versus the smaller homes going to be. Well,
0: are the streets curved or are they in a grid, right. you know, like the old neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Neighborhood. Exactly.
1: And so, and so a lot of that's driven by hydrology and it gets boring and, but there is a lot that goes into, there's a science behind it. It's not just art. There's also some science, but it's both. It's, it's finding that good balance. If you want it to be aesthetically pleasing and interesting, it also needs to meet some traffic engineering standards. You have to make sure that emergency vehicles can get through in a safe way. You need to make sure that people don't have to drive too far down an alley to get out to a street when mm-hmm. they're leaving their garage. There's so many details that go into Understanding a neighborhood's design, and and most people don't really think about it if it's designed well. They really do think about it if it's not designed yeah. well. Uh, I live in Puckett, as you do, and and it's a crazy design. You know, it's a very odd uh, design. i have not. Nobody can it. find <laughs> my house <laughs> right?
0: unless they have it up on Google That's Maps. Right. It's,
1: so Puckett was more of an art, maybe, uh-huh. and less of a science. Less uh, paying attention to traffic flow and things of that nature, but. So you start, and and, and then I had a, such a great team, such a great team. I hired Robert Keyes and associates way back in the day, and we had some good quality civil engineers. Uh, uh, Joe Shane came into the picture later. And all these contractors and professionals is who made me look good because they're the ones that did the work. I would go to the utility companies and explain what we were doing, and mm-hmm. they're the ones who would design the underground infrastructure for power. Uh, same with my utility contractors and my street contractors. So granted, yes, we had the vision and we were the ones who had to make it happen, but the worker, those contractors are the ones that end up getting it all put together. Civil engineer is the single most important component right, to a good, uh, well-planned, well-designed and well-functioning neighborhood. And so the civil engineer component to this is the single most critical part because that can really make or break a neighborhood People don't understand. They say, oh, well, how much does, it, does the city put into this? Mm. You know, well, these are city streets. Surely the city builds these. No, 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 no. The city doesn't build these streets. The developer <laughs> builds the streets. The developer puts in the water and the sewer and the power and the gas and the drainage systems. So they have to work well, right? They have to be managed well. They have to be designed well. And they have to function for 100 plus years. Give
0: me, or at least give listeners, uh, a list of some of the neighborhoods that Rock Rose
1: has developed. We, we designed and built Westover Park, Westover Village, which used to be Southwest Golf Course for any of your listeners that remember it. may remember that. I back played in the there. Days, you uh, could hit
0: the ball a long way because there's ways. nothing out there. Right? That's right.
1: Uh, City View. We actually finished the last three or four phases of City Park. And then colonies, mm-hmm. and now we're working on a new neighborhood called Pinnacle.
0: Okay, I, I wanted to ask: when you get to the point where you're starting to think about a neighborhood, um, you know, maybe you're you're four to five years before there are any streets or lots or anything like that. You know, the the personality of the colonies is really different from the personality of Westover Park. Pinnacle has its own personality. How much thought do you give to that aspect yeah. of it? Like, we want this to be maybe a higher end mm-hmm. sort of neighborhood. We want it to feel this way versus we want it to feel like, uh, this place where maybe houses are more affordable. Like what are mm-hmm. all the, the things that you're thinking
1: of? No, it's a great question. It, it obviously geography has a lot to do with it. So there's two main components that go into deciding if you're going to do a neighborhood mm-hmm. like the colonies, the two biggest components are location and timing of the market. Mm-hmm. So does the, can the market bear that kind of a housing? In fact, if you think back to when the colonies started, There wasn't really anything. The only thing that came close to what is now known as the call. What people think about when they think about the colonies would be sleepy hollow, Mm -hmm. but even compared to sleepy hollow, in some regards, it was, it was really reaching out into territory unknown, uh, for me to be thinking about creating all these open spaces and and lots as big as an acre that were ridiculously expensive comparatively at the time in a price range that had never been tested. Was crazy, mm-hmm. But there was a lot of research that went into that understanding your market and knowing there are people out there who would do this sort of a product if it existed. And so one of the things that that I kept going back over in my head was I lived in Wolfland and I had some experience of, of designing a lot of homes in Sleepy Hollow. And so I remembered always thinking, you know, all these neighborhoods have these little clusters within them that are high end. And clearly this community supports that why can't we make an entire neighborhood that is that high end? Hmm. And so we that was kind of the, the thought process was, you know, could we create a neighborhood that was full of like cloisters and Oldham circles and all the things that we have grown to know over the years as being sort of the high-end areas? And why not make that all in one neighborhood?
0: And the colonies had some interesting features. I, I, I feel like it and the greenways sort of sprung up mm-hmm. pretty close to each other. And both of them, to different degrees, introduced like large – Open right. walking paths, um, some roundabouts, like some some features that were different mm-hmm. for Amarillo. Certainly, they could be found in other communities, you know, in the state. But like they felt new here. I mean, tell me about some of the intentionality behind those designs.
1: Well, in fact, uh, Eddie Scott and and Rusty Fuquay and Mr. Ted Shooter that I mentioned earlier, they're sort of the pioneers for these public improvement districts. And that's what these green spaces are called. Not to get too technical, but you know, for a neighborhood to have those kind of amenities, it, it had you have to create a district for that. Okay, and only and the people that live in that neighborhood are the ones that pay for it, not not the taxpayer in general. Right. The city's so not understand. like landscaping no. all that stuff. Exactly, that's a, an intentional uh, amenity within the neighborhood that then the homeowners themselves ultimately pay for. Uh, the maintenance of those spaces. And so the idea is let's create something that comes at a cost. It comes at a premium, but there are people that might enjoy having that in their neighborhood for walking trails and just to the aesthetic of uh, what they see out their front door or whenever they're driving around the neighborhood, you know, and so that, that common area public improvement district component was risky. Mm -hmm. to say the least. But when we saw that it was kind of taken off in the greenways, we thought, oh, well, this is working. And so now it's become kind of the norm. In fact, uh, uh, my good friend and competitor, Perry Williams, does a lot of common area amenity, public improvement district amenities, even in less pricey neighborhoods. And it's still sustainable and it still seems to work. People really enjoy it.
0: I want to talk a little bit about what the last few years have been like um, for Rock Rose, you know, as a developer, because I know, you know, maybe it was what six or seven years ago, you're finishing up uh, the colonies and then starting Pinnacle. And it it all took place during a period leading up to the pandemic. And then, like, Mm -hmm. since then, everything's gone crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wonder, like, what that has meant for. For you and for the business, just in navigating some of that stuff that all we see is availability of homes. We see the prices. We see stuff like supply chain. But I'm sure that you're seeing so many more elements of Mm -hmm. that. Talk to me about what that's been like.
1: Well, and let me say this. I don't want to downplay that because the last two or three years has been very challenging uh, for a lot of folks. Uh, but there's also the, the aspect of when you're talking about it through the lens of rock Rose development and how we view these markets, we have to be very nimble. And we've seen this before. And in fact, this doesn't even compare to what happened in 2008, in my personal opinion. Really? Okay. Right. So it's a different kind of housing crisis in 08. Now, and also people get really worked up over, oh my gosh, these mortgage rates are out of control high, but it's relative, isn't it? So mortgage rates are actually very low <laughs> compared to yeah. what they were when we started our company. In fact, if you look at the average mortgage rate over the last 25 years, this is well below average, even at five or 6%. So I don't get too concerned about this because I, I have enough historical knowledge to know that we're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. We just have to navigate it in a different way. Okay. So we're selling you know, half as many lots, building half as many homes for a minute, and then it all kind of catches back up again. We're already seeing some easing up on some of the supply chain issues. Lumber is still very unpredictable, but it's definitely lower than it was at its peak. Uh, we we were blessed this time around. When one of the reasons, Jason, that I'm saying that this doesn't compare to 08 is because there's a huge difference. When this downturn hit in the housing industry this time, we had very little inventory. We were in such short supply of inventory that that really helped offset some of that burden because back in 08, there was a tremendous amount of inventory. So you had a double whammy. You had the subprime mortgage crisis right at the same time as you had a whole bunch of inventory to unload. Okay. And that made it really extra hard. Amarillo was a very conservative community when it comes to housing. We just don't get too carried away ever. You had to go back to the late seventies when savings and loans were basically begging people to build houses. It's never happened since nothing to that magnitude. So we don't get too far out ahead. I tell people all the time we didn't party, so we don't have a hangover, right? So we're we're getting through this time. There's still hundreds of homes a year being built. People are still stepping up to the plate to pay to pay the higher mortgage rates. I say this all the time. You know, buying a home is not really a money decision, it's a life decision. And so you have to kind of adjust, okay, well, we we need this home. We want to buy this home. Yeah, it stinks that we didn't get 2.8% mortgage, but let's move on. It's five and a half. Okay, mm-hmm. so what? Let's go. Let's do it.
0: I want to talk about Pinnacle since that's the newest development. It's one that over the past couple of years has has reached the phase where the public recognizes mm-hmm. that something's happening out there. Mm-hmm. You know, there are new homes, there are people moving into them. Tell me about its personality You know, when you think of it compared to Westover Park or to the colonies as as a rock rose product, what are you trying to accomplish with that development?
1: That's a great question also. So I hadn't thought about it in those terms. I think what we're trying to accomplish is recognizing that the Greenways neighborhood uh, is finishing up. Mm -hmm. It's on its last phase or two, and it will be done before long. What's next, right? In the Canyon School District, so the way I look at things is, number one, you got to look at what school district you're in, what part of town you're on. This is our first development outside the loop. So it's very risky, right. right? And so the loop, we waited intentionally to time it when we did, because we knew this loop project was coming. It's certainly taking longer than yeah. we hoped it would, but it's getting close. And so we're outside the loop there. And we think about, all right, well, this is a product that is, as far as price range is concerned, is comparable to the Greenways. And now then, when the Greenways finishes, well, if you want to live in South umbrella in Canyon School District, and you're in, you're in the market of a, let's say, five hundred dollars to $700,000 home, where are you going to live? And so this is the natural progression okay. for that next neighborhood that provides that sort of lifestyle. The other unique thing about Pinnacle is it does have a little bit of terrain, so we're able to play with that in kind of a creative way. And, and it's very slopy and it has a really interesting ups and downs to it. So And, and also... One of the things we did, sort of strategically, and 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 worked on real hard with the Canis School District, who's a great partner. They just we love working with the Canis School District. They're, they're good partners. They're very proactive, and so we ended up creating a neighborhood that has K through twelve all in one neighborhood. And I'm pretty sure that doesn't exist anywhere else hmm. in town.
0: Okay, I I'm interested in your comments about the loop because you know I've I've always compared our loop to Lubbock's. You know, driving there and you see how nice it is and how the city has grown beyond it. There's a lot of development outside the loop like you mentioned, and there's not really here in Amarillo, mm-hmm. uh, at least we're still in the early stages. What does what does something like that that ease of, uh, of transportation mean for housing development? like, like what do you see Amarello doing? Is, is that going to be more of a thing where a lot of the new houses are going to be utilizing that space and that accessibility?
1: You know, a, a loop doesn't really limit the development. Um, the development's going to happen, period, mm-hmm. right? So when you if you were to look at an aerial, look at Google Earth, okay, and look at kind of zoom out, look at uh, a current image, and then go back about 20 years because there's a timeline that you can do on Google Earth. It's kind of fun to play with. And you can see the natural progression. So the natural progression is, is south and southwest. Uh, and then the loop appears, right? And it's, as we know, it's getting to be a real loop and, and getting closer to that. Uh, But it doesn't really have any bearing on that progression. That progression was going to happen regardless. Mm -hmm. Whenever Colonies finishes, you move on. And Greenways finishes, you move on to the next section. Hillside Terrace and Heritage Hills finish, you just move on to the next section. Um, Pinnacle, it finishes, and we'll move on to the next section. So some of that happens to be inside the loop, and some of that happens to be outside the loop. In fact, Hillside and Heritage Hills and all those were outside the loop. Now they're inside the loop because we moved the loop. So the loop really is a separate and independent component to that. It's there because the traffic demands it. We need ways around the city. We need to flow traffic in a more effective and efficient way. We didn't have the funding at the timing that we needed to have it the way Lubbock did. So Lubbock was able to do a complete loop long before um, it was as needed as what ours is. So our timing is a little off. Uh, it, once helium is finished, then then we'll get into a situation where it looks like a true Lubbock type loop. But that progression is going to happen naturally over time, regardless of where that loop ends up. However, the loop does drive additional retail development.
0: Okay. Okay. And retail development is really important for neighborhood development.
1: Super important. In fact, it's, it's the other component to what we do is we develop these neighborhoods, spend maybe 15 years developing a neighborhood, and then ultimately, once you get enough rooftops in, then you start getting that national attention from mm-hmm. national tenants who are trying to move their business here. And we've seen a huge uptick in the business side of our business uh, just in the last two or three years. National tenants, we're now on the radar. Mm -hmm. Amarillo is considered a tertiary market, kind of a secondary market. But we're now really on the radar in terms of the national tenant demand to be in Amarillo. And so the number of deals we're doing commercial in Amarillo are 10 to 15 times more than they were just five years ago.
0: Is that a factor of the population having you know, crested 200,000? Are they looking for us to hit some sort of threshold before we really land on their radar?
1: Certainly population has a lot to do with it, but also distribution. And and unfortunately, that's why Lubbock gets everything before Amarillo okay. does because it's the just distribution hubs, the- right? So whenever the distribution starts to make sense, the Lubbock uh, version of, let's say, a Costco or whatever, mm-hmm. Uh, H-E-V, right? Everybody wants Costco and H-E-V. So they have to work really well in Lubbock before they can get too serious about moving to Amarillo because that distribution hub has to go in concentric circles out from the the hub. That's part of it. The other part of it is, yes, of course, population. And then there's a third component, which is the retail demand has actually exceeded the ability for the retail to keep up with it. So we have a huge need for additional retail development. So once that kind of hits a tipping point of, Uh, let's just say, for example, we'll use H-E-B as an example. And and for the record, no, I'm not talking to H-E-B and I have no idea if they're coming to Amarillo, but as an example, they'll look at, okay, let's look at what are the number of grocery stores per capita? What's our distribution center look like? And has the population grown beyond that ability to take care of it? Uh, Sam's did the same thing when they put in their second store. So we're, the population is getting to a point where we're we're kind of a no brainer for a lot of these right. na- new national tenants.
0: As as a developer, is Rockrose proactive or reactive in in trying to get some of those national chains or retailers? Like, are you just saying we've got this space, let's see who comes to us, or are you reaching out and saying, "Man, this would be a really great place for a Panera Bread or mm-hmm. an HEB or something like that"?
1: very proactive. Okay. It's just that unfortunately it takes a lot of time. I've been going to conferences for 30 years uh, where retailers congregate to see where they're going to expand their their market share. My goodness, it probably took me 10 years to get a Starbucks here. So whenever these things appear, the Starbucks is popping up and the, the you know the 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 uh, uh, Dutch Brothers is popping up or or a Circle K is popping up or whatever is popping up, what you're seeing is the final result of many years of grinding away and forming these relationships and trying to convince mm-hmm. some of the national guys that, hey, we think we can accommodate your business. And we think we have the, the uh, money and the population to, to check your boxes off. In fact, what you learn through this process is when those businesses do get risky enough to go ahead and take that chance... They ultimately always realize, oh, my gosh, why didn't we do this sooner? Right. Right. right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard, oh, our umbrella store is our best performer per square foot. Like, okay, well, let's do more. And I think that probably makes locals
0: feel better because I I think so often we get into the mindset or we're just sitting around waiting, feeling like we're waiting to be noticed, you know, Mm -hmm. by, by some of these major retailers and just frustrated and it's because we don't know that, like there are people like Rock Rose or other developers that are like very intentionally trying mm. to get that to happen. Right. It's just a long, long road. It to is get
1: there. a slog, yes. And so we're—I I can't name any names, but we're working with some big national retailers as we speak, and have been for since about 2020. Uh, and we're getting ever closer to pulling some triggers on some pretty big developments. But you know, you, if you look at things like the Amazon deal that we were involved with, or the the Bucky's that we were involved with, some of those businesses, they do just shock you. And they come out of nowhere and mm-hmm. go, hey, we're ready to come to umbrella And I'll admit, I never saw those coming. Now, we, we were lucky enough to be in a position to be able to help them make that a, a possibility. But that does happen. But for the most part, it's it's people like me going to these conferences and saying, let me explain why you're missing out by not being an Amarillo. It's a sales job, it really is. But when they figure it out, then it's a it's just kinetic energy after that. I want to close
0: this section by just asking, you know, why you've stayed here for so long, your entire life. You know, you grew up here, mm-hmm. you've you've had your adult career, multiple careers in this area. And I mean, development has gone through ebbs and flows and you know certainly there probably were periods where you might have done better if you were not in this market but you've stuck it out you're still here like why is that what keeps you here
1: well a lot of things first of all my incredible wife that I met about 16 going on 17 years ago uh, and she and I have had such a tremendous time here in Amarillo with family and friends. The business environment here is fantastic, Jason. I, I have, I'm I not the least bit tempted to take whatever it is that I can do and go do it somewhere else. It is so much fun to work in this town and to have the relationships that we do with people like you and all of our builder family and our contractor family. You can't match that. It's like moving into the best house imaginable, but your neighbors are terrible, right that Mm -hmm. that would be awful that would be an awful experience and this is not that this is all of the neighbors are good and we love being around them and at the end of the day it's about the relationships i can't imagine matching or certainly doing any better relationship wise than what we've accomplished here in amarillo so we're staying this episode of
0: hey amarillo is supported by lazy boy home furnishings here in amarillo You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family. They live right here in town. And here's the thing, they offer a lot more than just recliners. You can find all kinds of furniture there in a variety of contemporary styles, fabrics, leather, and a lot of different colors. Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings has a ton of products in stock. They're ready to take home or deliver today. And there's special financing right now up to 48 months. Go visit the showroom at Lazy Boy of Amarillo, 3636 Sonsi. Okay, I'm back with Matt Griffith. Matt, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and it just opened a new exhibition called On the Edge of the Plains, which explores how artists in its collection have captured the wonder and beauty of Paladero Canyon over the years. It's just open. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, the first question, I know this is a question that you are always thinking about, but when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for?
1: Well, I have a very specific answer to that question now, Jason, because we've been working with Kids Inc. on this big sports complex that a lot of people have heard about. And the Atterbury family, we were uh, blessed to be able to have an opportunity to do the donation for the land uh, for this complex. And so what I hope to see in 10 years is these quality of life amenities, especially for youth. Amarillo is in desperate need of sports facilities to keep these families at home, playing at home and spending their money at home and not having to go to hotels and restaurants in Lubbock and Oklahoma City and Dallas and so forth. So my dream is that in 10 years, that will be a major draw for our community and for our youth.
0: And I imagine that the potential home for some Rock Rose development Around that facility, right?
1: Absolutely. There's there's a lot of land that we have around there that we're trying to create a master plan to complement this Rock Rose Kids Inc. sports complex.
0: Yeah, I, I I know we both have kids the same age and, and have traveled forever mm-hmm. for sports. And I, I just see the economic impact that we've lost out yes. on. Um even having, you know, teams from Lubbock come right. to Amarillo and play, you know, it's it's just something that uh, we've tried to do in the past and just has never worked. So I'm glad it's happening.
1: Yeah. And, and it's important to note that, you know, the, the whole idea that it's never worked, it always, you know, the city has tried in the past to pr- promote a bond and the taxpayers have, have turned down those bonds for these youth complexes. This is privately funded. It's mm-hmm. not a taxpayer burden. It's not a bond. So right now we're just in the process of trying to raise the money and, and get this thing started.
0: Okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of?
1: <laughs> grackles.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> grackles have been mentioned on the show, but I think now that you've said it, everybody's going to be like, yep, I agree.
1: <laughs> They're annoying. Yeah. Yes.
0: I, uh, I'm fascinated with uh, the way that they just congregate by the thousands yeah. in certain uh intersections. Some trees they just decide is going to be the grackle tree. It's it's crazy.
1: It is. It's very annoying.
0: <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. Okay, what does this area not have enough of?
1: Well, sort of back to the Kids Inc. theme, uh, not enough youth activity, facilities, and retail. I mean, in, in all honesty, we were very underserved with retail, and we're working on that very hard. We're, we're, we are personally working on both of those things. <laughs>
0: and that, that's something that is... It is interesting to me because I, I think about retail and I always think, well, you know, maybe it was the 200,000 threshold or something in our city, but really we're the retail hub for 400,000 plus people right. in the Texas Panhandle. And the fact that that has taken so long to land right. on some of the retailers' desks to realize that, that that's frustrating
1: to me. And by the way, Fun fact, the retailers did recognize that in 06 and 07, and we were people don't realize how close we were to really? another major, major regional mall. And then the subprime mortgage crisis hit. Now, wouldn't it wouldn't be a mall the way we think of malls, more of a lifestyle center and power center. But then the subprime mortgage crisis hit in late 07, 08, and that uh, that sent everybody packing.
0: Okay. People will be intrigued to have heard that, I imagine. <laughs> okay, when you talk to outsiders about Amarillo, and, and I'm thinking of you – selling Amarillo to some of these retailers. Maybe you're talking about demographics and all that stuff. But like when you talk about the city, what do you talk about?
1: You know, I I like to think I have a lot of experience with this because this is what I do every day is talk to outsiders about Amarillo. But I, I really, it comes down to quality of life and how easy it is to live here. I deal with national brokers and national tenant reps and national developers all day, every day. Uh, and that's what they're looking for is they, they, they get almost envious of the idea of being able to come out of the DFW hecticness of their traffic and live in a community like this. So it's how, how easy it is to live here, just how incredible the hospitality is, um, great place to raise kids. All those chamber of commerce things that you hear about are really true. And people see that when they get here. Okay. What's your favorite building in Amarillo? I really kind of have to, from an architectural fanatic standpoint. I I, I love the Cobalt Building. Okay, uh, it's historic. It was it's over a hundred years old. I think it was a post office originally when it was built. Just a beautifully well done, extremely detailed, gorgeous exterior of a building, but interior. My heart is with uh, Amtech, just because. Oh yeah, that's just where I I I live right now in terms of like trying to help youth and mentor and teach. And, and I have a partner by the name of Johnny Price that's allowed me to come into her classes over the last several years and, and help encourage youth. But Amtech is amazing. If no one has, if, if some of you have not had the, a chance to tour Amtech, please try to get that set up. You will be blown away that that is in our city. Yeah. It's unbelievable.
0: You'll, you'll get some future drafting students coming out of there to help you out, I imagine. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck?
1: Oh gosh, really, it's a lot of them. Um, you know, we love public house and crush and, uh, and and anything downtown. Uh uh, but I I gotta admit, um for food, just straight up best food is Shiley's barbecue. Okay. Oh yeah. my gosh, it's good stuff. Yeah. Tremaine Brown, boy can he cook. Tremaine <laughs> uh
0: has a reputation that's grown to uh, include a lot of stuff that's not food. And I, <laughs> yes, I always sir. want to not forget about the food because Shiley's is so good. Absolutely. Okay. What's something
1: local you feel is underrated? I just think that, you know, really to me, I think the quality of life here is kind of underrated. I, I do hear local people complain a lot about not having, oh, we don't have this and we're never going to have that. And we're not, we don't have the culture and the entertainment but it's just such an incredibly good easy place to live so i I think it's a great quality of life okay and the
0: last question when was the last time you visited Paladuro canyon
1: well actually just this past november with my oldest son and his wife and and my granddaughter and she could not get there from they live in atlanta so she just couldn't get enough of it it was an amazing experience
0: that's it's always cool to get uh outside perspective on kind of discovering it the first mm-hmm. time as the, the land drops out while you're driving down there. Exactly. Okay. Uh, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience?
1: I would really love people to please educate yourself on this kids, Inc. Sports Complex. Uh, Jason mentioned it. It's the uh, economic impact is immeasurable. Uh, when you think about the thousands and thousands of families that leave this town every weekend to go participate at some club level sport. They take their money, not only take their money out of our community, but they go spend it in someone else's community. So there's that the economic impact is huge, but moreover, just the ability for families to be able to keep their kids right here in town, play through all the tournaments. They don't have to miss out all in one location. This town needs this very, very badly. So please get on the kids Inc website. Um, and look at how you can contribute, how you can participate. Let's make this thing a reality.
0: Yeah. I want to say like you, we we see a lot of large corporate gifts and partners, you know, Amarillo National Bank is giving money, but like there are
1: individuals and families who are making donations too. Absolutely. And that's at the end of the day, that's what is going to win the day. And God bless these business owners in our town who have been so unbelievably generous and have stepped up in a big way. And they're going to make sure this thing happens. But it doesn't happen without the whole community chipping in what they can and contributing.
0: Okay. Matt Griffith, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Matt for the interview. You can learn more about Rock Rose Development and its master planned communities like Pinnacle at rockroseamarello.com. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Lazy Boy Home Furnishings and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 288. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.